You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, I think I dabbed for the first time this weekend. And I, I know that uh, Cam Newton is getting credit for that, but that's really the CDC. I mean, that's how you're supposed to sneeze, right? I mean, and so uh, my name's Casey uh, Maddox. And so if you don't recognize me, um, I was here for two years, about two years ago. And so I was the uh, first church planning resident uh, for Stonegate. And so I came here and learned from the Stonegate staff and just grew in so many ways. And so I was, uh, I was the first Valentine. Like Valentine is the church planning resident 2.0. And so he is bigger, he is badder, he is balder, arguably, he is bicepier, and he is blacker. And so, um, and so it, it actually is important for me uh, to say this, because um, if you don't know me, you need to know what you've done uh, for me and, and for uh, our new church in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, you guys have supported us in incredible ways. And so 2015 has been a big year for us. We, uh, we had our first, uh, we started our first weekly corporate worship uh, last week of February 2015. It feels like that was like 10 years ago. I mean, like church planning will age you. Like I used to have beautiful black hair, long and flowing. I, I was Puerto Rican and look what happened to me. And so... I mean, it, uh, last week of 2015, and our first Sunday for this is a weekly, we had done some periodic you know, uh, worship gatherings, and we started to do it every other week. We had like four, I think it was 49 adults, and then the next week is 47. And so in that staff meeting, you're like, hey, this thing's going the wrong way. What do we do? Um, and so we just drank coffee and prayed. And so, but we ended out the year, and so the last two weeks in 2015, we had 105 adults and then 107 adults. And so God's been really, really gracious to us. I know, you're like, oh, that's great, wonderful. Um, but you need to know this. You are a part of God's kingdom to a people that you may never meet on this side of eternity. Like, your generosity and your support is having impact in places you may never go. And man, that's how the kingdom of God expands. We had a, a Christmas uh, party uh, for some of our leaders. And so one of our friends, he has a restaurant and he's, a, he's not a believer, uh, but he closed his restaurant down early for us. And so we had like 30 adults um, in the restaurant. And we took a moment to kind of talk about all that God had done. You know, so the growth that we had seen that God had doubled us in, the, in 2015 and say, man, what would it be like if God doubles us in 2016? Can we pray for God to do that? You know, we got to celebrate eight baptisms, eight adult baptisms, and we had two others make decisions, but they went back to their home church to get baptized. I advised against it, but they did anyways. I feel like we ought to be able to count that, but we don't. And so, and so we were just celebrating all that God done. So out of 100 people, one in 10 were baptized by us. And so we're so excited about that. And I baptized one young man in Ethan, so he's on staff with me. Um, he baptized uh, one young man. Everyone else was baptized by people who were influential in bringing them to Christ. And so one out of 10, God has been so gracious to us. And so we just kind of had full disclosure where I said, hey, you need to know, this is what we have in the bank. And that's always scary because our church is really, really young like, I mean, really, really young. And so if you say anything with thousand at the end, they think they've arrived. And so like, we have this money in the bank and they're like, oh my goodness, we are so rich. And I'm like, 
And then we've got some older people and they, they own businesses and they're like, oh, we're about to go unemployed. And so we're like, well, we're somewhere in between. But it was a moment for me to say about 35% of our budget right now is covered from the inside. That means 65% of our budget is covered by God's people in other places who want to see the kingdom of God expand in a place like Lawrence, Kansas. Man, that is incredible. Man, thank you guys. Thank you for your faithfulness. And so if you came in late, like half of you came in late, uh, we are in John chapter one, and we're gonna be looking at verses one through 18, and there's gonna be sections that we don't really dive into because it's weighty. Like it's weighty. So open up your Bibles, turn on your smartphone, whatever it is. And we're going to be in John chapter one. And what we're doing is we're looking at what the apostle John is writing about Jesus. He's writing about Jesus entered history. And because Jesus entered history, it changed everything. And so he's in John chapter one, it's talking about the incarnation of God. And so this is like a Christmas message. When God put on flesh and was born as a small baby in a poor circumstances to a poor family in a nowhere town out in the Middle East to change the entire world. And so we could look at this in this way. We could say, this is like a major event in the world in all of eternity. It's also a major celebration in the Christian calendar. Like right now, we're in between the two celebrations of the Christian calendar. We celebrated Christmas, the incarnation of God. God made man. And here before too long, we're gonna celebrate Easter, the resurrection of God. Like there's a lot of doctrines that we can hold open-handedly and we can agree to disagree and we can have unity and fellowship. But when it comes to the Christian calendar, it tells us there are two things that are distinctly Christian that we can't let go of. We can't yield. We can't say it's okay to disagree. We have to stand on God made man, the incarnation of God, and God rose from the dead, the resurrection of God. And so we see in John chapter one, he is coming to say this. Jesus came and it changes everything. And we're gonna frame it up like this. Because Jesus came, I don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus came, I don't have to be afraid. And so John, more than any of the other apostles, he's got the most nicknames. And I love nicknames. Like, I love nicknames. And so I'm going to share some nicknames. This is my family. Uh, I just want you to you can get to know me. And so uh, we have four kids, and we're trying to figure out how to make money off their cuteness, and it's not working yet. You know, we don't want them to become child stars because that never goes good for them. But sometimes we're like, well, you know, maybe it's okay. And so we've got Quinn. And so Quinn is six and a half. Quinn has this wicked gift of delegation. She is a delegator. And so we'll uh, have house cleaning moments because we have four kids. So we have to have house cleaning moments like every hour on the hour. And for whatever reason, we have a tradition where we play hillbilly music. And so it's like bluegrass. And so everyone gets pumped up and we're like dancing around, cleaning. And Quinn, uh, she's into everything girly. She'll grab her pom-poms and when it's cleaning time, she'll start flipping around like nunchucks like this and she's going around and it's not very helpful for cleaning, believe it or not. So I will give her specific instructions. Quinn, I need you to clean this. And she will go around the corner and she will get her sisters and her brother around and she will start delegating the job away. And on one side, I'm like, She's an incredible leader. And the other side, I want to kill her. I told you to do that. And so Quinn, she's this delegator. You've got Liv. Liv is an instigator. 
Like she starts stuff all the time. She is our happiest kid. I mean, things will happen and she just floats. Like you should see how she walks. She's just kind of bubbly and she dances and she is so happy. And then the next breath, she is like in the pits and everyone around her can die. I mean, she's up here and she's down there and she instigates and stirs stuff up. Cruz, he's my boy. My boy. Cruz is my boy. And he... uh he wants to, he loves to play football and to tackle. And so he wants to be like a, a linebacker. Um, but based on the genetic code that I gave him, he might want to be a kicker. And so we'll see. Uh, but he loves to tackle. So he watches football. So when we kind of play football, he notices at the end of every play, like everyone's lying on the ground. And so he thinks that's something you're supposed to do. And so we'll like throw him the football. He grabs it, he just falls over. And I'm like, you're not going to play offense. And so that's Cruz. And then we've got Anna. Anna was a little bit of a surprise. Um, and she's just cute. Like she's, I, I don't know what else to say. She's just cute. She's also a little ghetto. Like she's the youngest of four. And we had them pretty quick. So six and a half down to one and a half. And so uh, the other day, uh, we got some Lincoln Logs. Uh, and we were building Lincoln Logs, and it has a little train track, and so Cruz and I, and I look over, and I see Anna, she's kind of over on the side of the room, and she's looking at the Lincoln Logs, and I know what she's thinking. Like, you don't have to have the spirit, spiritual gift of discernment to know what a one-and-a-half-year-old is thinking when they look at Lincoln Logs, and she comes out like a flash of cuteness. I mean, cuteness is just like blazing off her, and when she runs for whatever reason, she just kind of puts her belly out and like runs like this, and she's tiny, so it's cute, and she runs and just crashes all the Lincoln Logs. And Cruz, he kind of sounds strange. He goes, Anna, you know, and, and so he's mad. And so she picks up the train and he's like, no, give it to me. And I, you know, when I mimic him, I realize he kind of sounds like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's like, you've got to stop, you know. And, and so she, he's like fighting over this. And so Anna looks at me, looks at Cruz, sees that there's diversity happening, that they're wrestling for the same thing. And then she says, what do I do? I see this happening in her mind. And she looks at what's in her hand and she has the train in her hand and she just ghetto slams him right in the head with a train. I mean, she just, bam. And it's that moment where I am sure of original sin because I promise you, she has never seen me hit my wife with anything. I mean, anything, I promise you that. And so, I mean, she just, she's an opportunist. And so that's my family. I, that was just bonus. We got to keep going. All right. So here we are. John chapter one, written by John the Apostle. And so if you read the scriptures, you're going to find out that he was called John the Apostle. He was also called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like when they filled out name tags, don't you think he put that on his name tag? John the Apostle, AKA the disciple whom Jesus loves. What do you think about that, Peter? And so he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was also called brother to James. And so if you're a younger sibling, I'm the youngest of three, you always lived with that. Oh, isn't that cute? You're so-and-so's brother. And you're like, oh, I will be my own man here. And so he was the brother to James. He was also called the sons of Zebedee, which we need to resurrect the name Zebedee. I mean, that is a cool name, Zebedee. And so he was the son of Zebedee. If your dad ever ran for public office like my dad did, he ran for DA, everyone knew, oh, you're the son of John. And so he was the son of Zebedee. He was also called the sons of thunder. Like finally a nickname that's tattoo worthy, right? The sons of thunder. And he got that nickname because he and his brother, after the, Jesus went to Samaritan village and they rejected Jesus and his teaching, as they walked out, they said, 
let's just send fire from heaven to consume them all. Like you don't get the nickname son of thunder by being a meek, gentle guy. I mean, you get the nickname being sons of thunder by picking up the toy train and bashing your brother in the head. And so son of thunder, you keep reading about how John turns out and they call him the apostle of love. And so right here in John 1, where he's trying to talk, Jesus came and changes everything. He's saying, listen, this is not like just outside of me. This is not just me saying something theoretically. This is not me just talking about what you can read in a theology book, that Jesus coming changes everything. This is me. Jesus came and took the son of thunder and made him the apostle of love. Jesus can change you. Jesus' incarnation changes everything. And John is telling us that Jesus changes everything because he didn't bring love with him. Love himself stepped into the middle of humanity to change this world. And so if you have your Bibles, keep your finger here and listen to how he describes it in 1 John chapter 4. And so he wrote 1 John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, also Revelation. And so this is how he describes Jesus' coming. This is written by the same John. He, said, he says, Jesus is coming, will change how you fear. You don't have to fear anymore because Jesus has come. Love himself came. And so 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It says, anyone who does, not lo- who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That's the incarnation. Jesus became man. God became man. Was manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And so it goes on in verse 10. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that love that he has loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sin. And then jump down to verse 18. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so go back to John chapter 1, and this is what we're going to say. This is what John is saying about Jesus coming, how it changes everything. He's saying, because Jesus has come, you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be scared anymore. Now, if that grabs you the way it grabs me, it puts me in this place. Why am I still so afraid? And so we're going to answer three questions. I mean, really four questions. We're going to answer this. Fear that Jesus coming relieves. And it's first, fear that God has abandoned us. Fear that God has abandoned us. Second, it is fear that God won't understand my pain. Fear that God won't understand my pain. And then fear that God won't help me. That fear that God won't help me. And so let's start with the first one. Fear that God has abandoned me. And so over the course of history, what John does when he starts his gospel is he takes two words to mingle them together, to pull on this thread of redemption that we see all throughout the scriptures. And it's the word logos. Look at verse one. It says, in the beginning was the word. And so the Greek word there is logos. Now this is a word that is rich in history and would have been understood very much by the Jewish mind. This is a word that they could have pulled so many books off the shelf. They could have pulled them off the shelf to say the logos of God is the wisdom of God, the infinite nature of God, the supreme God of the universe who knows all, sees all, is all. 
Like that made sense. Like this would have pushed back to Genesis in, in the creation account. When, when God created everything, it said that he created it out of his mighty, powerful word. And so Psalms 33, verse six, it says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the breadth of his mouth, all their host. And so when he says in the beginning was the word, he's saying this word, this Jesus This word that has come is the word that is powerful, that brought all things into existence. But that's not all he's saying. We'd pull that thread through biblical history even more. And what we'd see is we'd come to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. And so Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 says, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are grass. But then verse eight, it says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so in Psalms, it said that this powerful logos, this powerful word of God is powerful. But also here in Isaiah 40, it says it's resilient. It's something that you can build your life on. It's something that you can trust. It's not just a demonstration of power that's around you. It's something that can sustain you. And then we look at Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, verse 10 and 11, it says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purposed and shall succeed in the things for which I sent. And so it's saying that God's word is certain, that it's powerful, it's resilient, but it's certain. Whatever Jesus steps out to do in your life, the scripture is gonna say, he will surely finish what he began. And so John, in the first few words, he says, in the beginning was the word. And he's pulling on all this redemptive history to say, it didn't all make sense. We saw what God was doing. We saw his law. We saw how he spoke through the prophets, but it didn't all make sense until Jesus. And so in the beginning was the word. Now let's go on what it says about this. So in the beginning was the word. Look at the text. The word was with God. And so all of a sudden it says this word is something that's kind of beside God. And so it's separating itself just a little bit. It's starting to bring this personhood. If we go down to verse 14, we see that it calls it a person. It says his name is Jesus. And so it says in the beginning was the word. And it goes on. And the word was God. It shows the deity of this word that's entered in humanity. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, uh, nothing was made that has been made. It's showing its power. Verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's showing our need. It's showing our need. We need the light of God. And so this sits... Like if John is the introduction, I know it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but John is describing at just the right time, God put on flesh and became a baby to live a perfect life on our account, to die a substitutionary atonement for us, to be resurrected so that our sins can die with him and we can be raised to life with him. And so he's talking about this beautiful Christmas message, this Christmas message that gives hope and can calm my fears. And he's saying, listen, this means we're not abandoned. You see, if you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have the last words of the Old Testament are found in Malachi. And then before it gets picked up in John chapter one, you have 400 years of silence. 
400 years of silence. No prophet spoke for 400 years. No scripture was written for 400 years. And these years were not like blissful years of no cares. It wasn't all Disneyland and Disney World and popcorn at the movies. Like these were tragic, difficult years. For 400 years, God was silent. And then he enters the scene to declare, you're not abandoned. In Lawrence, um, the downtown area, Lawrence is a, a college town. And uh, it's about 110, 120,000 people, but like 30,000 of them are college students. And it's so it's kind of a, I mean, it's just a really cool town. You should come visit. Um, but the downtown street, it's Massachusetts Street. We call it Mass Street. It's where all the businesses like locally owned. It's just a downtown area. It's a beautiful area. And so I was driving my truck down Mass Street and I look over and I see two girls running. And I think one of them is Allison. And so she's running. She goes to our church. She was kind of new at the time. And so she just started coming to our city group. They're like your home groups, but we're free city church. So we put city in everything. I mean, we're like, it can't just be normal. It has to be city something. And so in our city group. And so I kind of look, but I don't have my glasses on. I don't have my contacts in. And so I'm kind of squinting out the window. And all of a sudden they look at me. And it's that moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the creepy guy looking out the window at the girls running. That does not go good for church planting. He's the creepy pastor. And so I kind of pull back in and I'm like, is that her? Is it not her? Is that her? Is it not her? And I was at the stoplight. I pull out my phone. And so I text Allison. Hey, I was going down mass. I think I saw you running. I hope it was you. I'm not creepy. I hope you're doing good. I'll pray for you. And so I send it. (laughs) And I wait for a response. Minutes go by, no response. The evening comes and go, no response. And I'm like, I've got to hear back. And so my mind starts racing. Not only was it not Allison, it was Allison, and she thinks I'm creepy. She thinks I was checking her out. And now she's spreading word on social media that Casey, this creepy pastor, checks out girls running, and I'm starting to freak out. I'm starting to panic. I need to hear from her. I need to know everything's okay. Nothing happened Saturday. We have church on Sunday night, so I go through Sunday. Sunday happens. Allison walks in. I'm just kind of looking at her. You didn't text me back. And she goes, oh, I dropped my phone in the toilet and it's ruined. And I was like, oh, I'm so thankful for your loss. I'm so thankful. Like that was such good news. For 36 hours, I was worried about what the message would be. Everything was holding in the balance. That was 36 hours. God's people waited 400 years and God sent Jesus to communicate with them. And so the incarnation of God, it says so much, but it tells me this. I don't have to fear that God has abandoned me. Listen to how it describes it. Look at verse 14. And so in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this word of God, the message from God was a person and it came to live with us. And then it describes it. We have seen his glory, his weight, his worth. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It goes on. If we're going to break that down, it would say, and the word became flesh. Like that's the incarnation. Like incarnation, it's the Latin word. Carne means meat. And so you can order chili con carne with meat, or you can order chili no carne, which no one wants to order that. And so God put meat on to be with us. Just jump down, look at verse 17. It tells us what he brought. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, God's people already had the law. 
but they needed to know what grace and truth was. So God sent Jesus so we could know what grace and truth. So I, we're not abandoned. God has sent Jesus. Go back to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt among us is actually, uh, it's derived out of the idea of tenting. So it's like tabernacling. And like we hear the, the idea of tent and we think, oh, it's that horrible weekend where I took my kids camping, you know, because they wanted to go camping. And so we froze together. They drooled on me in the tent. We ate hot dogs. I'm pretty sure it's going to give us cancer, but they love hot dogs. So we did it anyways. And so you think of it as something that's temporary, that you want to get through. Then it rained, even though they said it wasn't going to rain. They can't predict weather up in the Kansas area for whatever reason. They're never right. And so you go through all this of what tenting is. That's not what the first century church thought of tent. You see, the Jewish mind, when they saw that word, they would have remembered their history when God dwelled within the tabernacle and they lived in tents in the wilderness all around him. Like they would have seen that as something intimate, more intimate than a sanctuary because the Romans could tear the sanctuary down and could pull them away so they couldn't go and worship God. But when God was in the tabernacle, he moved with them. When the land was dry, they didn't have water. They went to God in the tabernacle and he provided water. When they needed food, they went to God in the tabernacle and he provided. When they saw armies coming, God went before them. God was personal and intimate. And this is the wording they're trying to say. God became man to be personal and intimate. And this is why Jesus said, it's better that I leave you so the Holy Spirit come because he's not in a tabernacle or in a tent near you. He can be in you. And so the word became flesh, intimate, permanent. Look at verse 12. How do we get that? We're not abandoned, but how do we get it? Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. You are not abandoned because you hold sonship and daughtership of God himself. After um, one of the evening section, set, sections, which by the way, who, who challenged me to jump in the cold water? What group was that? What, that was, yeah, like middle school boys. Rodney said he was gonna do that for me because I gotta go home. And so um, just hold him to that. And so after one of the sections, it was late. I go back and it was like taken like six, like there's all these takens. And so you got Liam Neeson. And so he's on a rampage because someone took his daughter. Like if you step into that story, like you have his daughter. She lies to him. She disobeys him. She makes stupid, 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 stupid decisions. She makes all these awful things and she gets snatched up by sex trafficking Albanian mafia and he has to go rescue her. And it's so exciting because in the movie, you're on his side and like every time he kills someone, you're like, oh, you'll thank him for that later. He's doing the right thing. And so, I mean, you're engaged in the movie because nothing is gonna stop him from getting his daughter and releasing her from slavery. Even though she lied, even though she was deceptive, she disobeyed, even though she made all these horrible decisions, it doesn't change the fact that he's going after his daughter. Even though you've lied and made all kinds of crazy decisions and made your life a mess, it doesn't change the fact because John 12 and 13, it says you have become the right to be a child of God and God always comes after his children. 400 years of silence, Jesus enters and it calms the fear. God has not abandoned you. 
he came near you. So God has not abandoned, it calms that fear. Also the fear that God doesn't understand my pain. God doesn't understand my pain. And so oftentimes when you're in pain, whether it's inside or outside of you, when you're suffering, you just want to know that people can understand what you're going through. You want to know that people can relate. And what this means, the incarnation of God, God putting on flesh means he can relate to your pain. He understands. Look at verse 1. We'll go 1, 2, and 14. And so just to remind you, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jump down to verse 14. It explains it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace. It's telling us that Jesus left the perfection of heaven to put on incorruptible flesh or corruptible flesh. Now, right here, it's mixing two words. One word makes sense in the context to the Jewish listener. One word doesn't make sense at all. And the word is logos and sarks. Logos means the, the beauty and the wisdom of God. Sarks means the corrupted flesh of man. And so what it's saying is this beautiful wisdom of God entered into corrupted flesh. And right at that point, the readers would have stepped back and said, that doesn't make any sense. You can't take the infinite, sovereign God of the universe who has no sin before him. You can't take that and put that in broken skin. But the incarnation of God declares that God loves you and God understands you. Listen to how a commentary says this. A commentary says, This affirmation about logos and sarks is the very heart of faith. And so he says, This is everything incorruptible God putting on corrupted flesh. This is everything. God has not abandoned us. No lowliness, no misery, no sinfulness is beyond God's comprehension and reach. He came among us, embraced our world of sarks, flesh in his incarnation and loved us. It is easy enough to say that God loves the world, but to say that God loves me in my frailty, in my faithlessness, that he loves sarks, this is another matter. This is the mystery and the power of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so two things are mixed, God's wisdom and God's beauty and God's wonderfulness, God's altogether differentness from us, and then everything that we experience. Being broken, feeling lost, feeling lonely, feeling confused, rejection. God felt all of that. God felt all of that. I mean, even we, we see it played out. Look at verse 10. It says, he, so Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and yet his people did not receive him. You see that the God of the universe who intimately put everything together entered into flesh and we rejected him. We rejected him. When I started student ministry, I was out in western Oklahoma, Weatherford, great place. Um, and uh, when I started, there was a girl, she was an eighth grader, her name was Amber. And Amber had cancer. And Amber was in the beginning stages and she was full of life. And, you know, she had to go through all the losing hair and a bunch of people shaved their head and she went through all of that. But I knew Amber battling cancer for a year. 
I was uh, commuting to seminary, and so I would drive through Oklahoma City on every Monday to go to school, and uh, I would find out if she was getting treatment. And if she was getting treatment, I would stop by and visit her and bring her a cupcake or whatever, and uh, it would be so wonderful. I'd, I'd go into the hospital room, and she would sit up on the bed, and she would say something like, how do you always find where I am? And I'm like, I've got a cell phone, you know? And so, you know, and so I just visit her, hug her, see her family. A year passes, and, and Amber dies. I'm not married yet. I don't have any children yet. I'm with Kinsey. We're outside in her car. And I'm trying to figure out, what do I go say to her dad? What am I going to say? And I, 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 I'm crying. We're praying. I don't know what to say. I walk in, and Bruce is there, and he looks at me, and he asks the question I don't want him to ask. He says, why would God take my baby girl? And I just look at him and I say, Bruce, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that he knows what it's like to lose a child. I know that. I know he knows that pain. The same thing is true for you. God knows your pain. God is intimate with your pain. God feels it. You don't have to go alone. And so we are not abandoned. God understands your pain, but there's another fear. And so he might be around. He might understand, but it's the question, can he help me? And so the fear that God can't help me because my life is so messed up. I've blown it so many times. It's so tangled. And what we see, what does he bring to help me? What does he bring to help the mess of my life? And we see it. So look at verse 14. In verse 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We've read this several times. Glory as the only son from the Father. Now look at this. Full of grace and truth. Look at verse 16. For from the fullness we have received grace upon grace. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so saying, you already had the law and it was far worse than you knew. But Jesus didn't come to bring more law. He came to bring truth and grace. Like if you follow the life of Jesus as unfolded in the scriptures, you see that he went around to raise the law to make it worse than you knew. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a, a series of sermons that he probably preached over and over and over, you come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, and what you see is he brings up a familiar passage or a familiar commandment. He says, you've heard it said that thou shalt not commit murder. And probably everyone in the audience or most of the people in the audience were like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Like if someone was in the audience, were like, ooh, kind of blew that one. Like, just keep that to yourself. We don't want to know. And so it was this moment, thou shalt not commit murder. You might sit up a little bit. I'm doing Okay. He says, but if you've had hate in your heart for someone else, before God, it's like murder. All of a sudden, you sink down a little bit in your chair. The law is heavier than I thought. Or he goes a little bit further. And so in verse 27, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks lustily upon a woman has committed adultery in his heart. And so all of a sudden, you sink down a little bit lower. You realize the law is heavier and harder than I ever thought. And so we see that he brings truth, but he also brings grace. Matter of fact, it says he brings grace upon grace, new grace that's every morning. It's Christmas morning. When um, two weeks before Christmas, my wife uh, had this idea to kind of redo our basement. 
And so to kind of make it more kid-friendly, and so we put a little swing down there, and you can come over and swing on it, because I, I, I really secured it. And so we put, like, built, like, um, chalkboards, so you can draw on our wall, and we had to frame some stuff out. And I also built um, a kitchen set, so a wooden kitchen set. Like, she wanted to buy one from Pottery Barn, but we'd have to, like, sell a child to do it. So we're like, well, we can't do that. So I built a kitchen set. And so I would be the two weeks before in the evenings. It's cold. My hands are bleeding. I'm out there building this kitchen set. Cruz would come help me sometimes. And it was crazy because he, he would look at it and not really know what it is. And at one point, he walks by it and he says, hey, that looks like a kitchen. And then just keeps going. And he was surprised on Christmas morning. He's like, a kitchen. And I'm like, Man, we've got a perception problem with this boy. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, but what happens is it's this feeling of Christmas morning, grace upon grace. And so Jesus brings truth and grace, but Jesus brings more than that. Jesus brings the rights of a son. In verse 14 at the end, he says, And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, and that means all inheritance was his. He didn't have to share it with anyone, but he tore his inheritance apart to include us. Look at verse 12. It tells us how we get it. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, look at what he gave us. He gave us the right to become children of God. A child altogether different. Cruz loves to help me with like little work projects. And I don't know when the last time you had three-year-old help it's not real helpful. We uh, helped a friend knock some walls out, and so I grabbed him, and uh, we took the hammer, and we beat into the wall and broke the, the sheetrock, and he thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so anytime he sees the hammer lying around, he wants to reenact that, so he picks it up and starts hitting the sheetrock. And it's not a problem now, because he can't really break through it, but it could be a problem really, really soon. But like when he comes to help, like a lot of times he kind of messes up. He's not very good. He always slows me down. He always can work just for a little bit and then wants to run and play and do something else. He always wants to pick up the tools out of my hand. And you see, it's not necessarily helpful for me, but he's my son, so he has the right to cry out for my help. He has the right to use all my things. He has the right to slow me down. I mean, he's my son. He has the right to be held intimately by my wife. Like no other male on the planet has that right. I mean, if they do that, they have the right to be dead then. I mean, he has these rights, these intimate rights. Because he's my son. He's, um, he's got three sisters, so he always has to play with girl toys. And I mean, I think he'll be all right. I mean, I, I had two older sisters, so I played with girl toys. I mean, I, I think I turned out all right. And so, I mean, it's a good day when he doesn't get dressed up as a princess or, or whatever. But we've got a fishing pole, and we got it for Quinn. And so it's actually a Barbie fishing pole. And so he inherited it, and so it's pink and pretty and frilly. But he loves to fish. And so he'll sit on the top of the stairs and he'll cast it down the stairs and it's got like a little rubber fish on it. So it bounces and flips all over and then he reels it up. But man, without fail, he'll cast it down. It'll bounce around. It'll get tangled around things. And then he'll start to reel. And when it doesn't come in, he jerks and he reels harder and he makes a tangled mess. All these different things are wrapped up in the line and he'll cry out for help. Daddy, daddy. And I'll come and I'll straighten the line out and I'll make it usable again. That's why Jesus came. He came to straighten out your tangled mess of a life. 
And he does it because you have the rights of a child, not because you earned it. The good news of the incarnation is you're not abandoned. He understands and he can help you. He can untangle the mess of your life. But it kind of brings us to the last question. Sure, he knows about it. Sure, he's everywhere. Sure, he's able to fix my life. Will God help me? Will God help me? And so look at verse 17. It says, For the law was given through Moses. That's nothing new. If you were a, a, a Jewish a believer in the audience and you read this, you would say, yeah, we know about the law. The law is perfect and it's holy, but I fail the law. My life is a mess. And so it says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then look at this. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has now made him known through the word. One of my commentaries, it said this. It said, the plainest reason why the Son of God is called the Word seems to be that as all our words explain our minds to others, so was the Son of God sent in order to reveal his Father's mind to the world. And so when we come to this passage and it says, Jesus is the exact message, the exact replica. He's God incarnate, and he is what God is like. So if you want to know that God is for you, look at Jesus. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews, he picks this up in Hebrews 1 to start off, and he says, long ago, it sounds the same way, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in the last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through him he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Look at the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. This tells us if you want to know what God is like, you just look to Jesus. What was Jesus like? I mean, we read in the Gospels. What did Jesus do to those who failed morally? And so you have the woman caught in adultery who's brought and thrown before Jesus. And what does he do? He protects her. He shields her. Others are there ready to cast stones and to kill her and to condemn her. And he protects her and stands in the way. And he gets down in the dirt with her. And he raises her up. And he says, who now condemns you? And he was standing there. He could have condemned her. And she says, no one, my Lord. And he says, well, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. So if you failed, you need to see how Jesus deals with those who failed. Or what about how did he approach people who deserve the hatred of others? People who cheated and swindled and broken promises. I mean, people who this world would look at and say, you get what you deserve. Look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stole from his own people. He cheated them. And when Jesus came to Zacchaeus, he said, I need to be with you in your house. And he went and sat down at a table with him and unpacked all of this brokenness. He said, I've got plans for you. I can undo the mess of your life. And it changed Zacchaeus. Or how about the leper? I mean, if you remember the story of the leper, the leper ran to Jesus and said, son of man, heal me, heal me, heal me. And Jesus looks at him and he touches him. It probably was years since someone touched him. And then he spoke words to heal him. He touched him before he healed him. You see, Jesus embraces the untouchable. 
Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, he writes this. He says, that religion which leaves out the person of Jesus has left out the essential point. You are not saved by believing a doctrine, though it is well for you to believe if it's true. You are not saved by practicing an ordinance, though you should practice it if you are one of those to whom it belongs. You are not saved by any belief except this, believing on Christ's name and receiving him, receiving Jesus. Have you ever been in conflict with someone? Like maybe, maybe in your house or a close friend? Like something happened. Something broke the relationship. It was fractured. You feel isolated and far from them. And your response when people ask you to forgive them is something like this. Hey, I'll forgive them. They know where I live. When they come to me, then I'll forgive them. Isn't that the incarnation of God? Isn't that God coming to us so that we can reconcile and be one with them, have the rights of a child? Jesus came to calm. We're not abandoned. We have God. He came to be with us. He understands. Jesus understands your pain and your brokenness. Jesus can fix you. Jesus can make you into a child of God and he can retrain you. Jesus can fix you. And Jesus is willing to step into your life and be with you. Let's pray. God, Lord, we ask that even in these moments, Lord, that you would be very present and you would um, speak. I mean, Lord, if we're honest... And there are seasons of our life where we would say, man, it is all tangled up and it is a mess. And Lord, it's such good news that you didn't come just to tell us more rules. You came to untangle the mess of our lives. You put on flesh and you left the perfection of heaven to enter into this corrupt world to not just show us how to live. I mean, you certainly did that. Not to show us how to live, to save us from our own demise. God, you boldly said you're for us. You have boldly proclaimed through Jesus that you can understand us. You have boldly proclaimed through Jesus that you can heal us and make us a child of God and you can usher us from death to life and that you will, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. The good news of the gospel is this. Everyone who wants Jesus gets Jesus. And you've got to come just as you are. And so as we're led in worship, to the back right of the room, there's a table along the wall. And it's kind of, it says prayer. And there'll be some people there. And if you just want to go there and just for prayer. I mean, maybe you want to go and you want to ask, tell me more about how to have this relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you just need to say, this is a season that I feel abandoned. Or this is a season that I'm in pain. Or this is a season that my life is all tangled up. And I just need you to pray for me. We have people who want to pray for you. They're not going to give you advice. They're going to show you a person. They're going to show you Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray as we move and we sing um, that you would, you would make us bold 
And we wouldn't be bold in our confidence or our ability to change. We'd be bold in the incarnated God, Jesus, who was born of a virgin in lowly circumstances, lived a perfect life, died upon a cross as a substitution for us, bore the wrath of sin, and was resurrected so we can live with you again. Father, I pray you'd be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.